Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, um, you can signal an usher. We have some guest Bibles, and the text itself is written on the flip side of the insert. The notes this morning's message are in the uh, bulletin, and on the back of that is the text itself, Luke 13. Um, and as you turn there, I want to uh, think back to uh, an event in my life that was formative, I'm sure, for many of you here over the age of 20. You can remember exactly where you were, what you were doing on that infamous day, September 11th in 2001. Um, I was newly a student at the Master's College, and I remember being woken up by my roommate, Groggy, going downstairs to my RA's room. The first plane had already crashed into the first tower, and then myself and a growing number of students in our dorm wing watched sort of in stupor as the second plane, and then as one by one the towers came down. Um, I can remember exactly the weather, what I was wearing. I'm sure for those who are older, it's similar to the, the uh, Kennedy assassination. And events like that shake us to the core. And one of the interesting things that happened is the fallout of 9-11 is that for at least a couple days or weeks, the, the media and the country were asking different questions than they normally do. And the most significant question was what to make of this. What does this mean? For our country, an attack like that was absolutely unprecedented. Um, nearly 3,000 people died as a result of the attack. What, what does it mean? How do we interpret this? What do we make of this? And where does God fit into this? And how, how does a good God let something like this happen? And in our text this morning, Jesus deals with very similar questions. There was a tower that fell in Jerusalem, and no, 3,000 people did not die, but 18 did. And there was a tragedy and a travesty that happened under Pontius Pilate in the temple itself, where Jews had their blood mixed with their sacrifices, and, and Jesus addresses that as well. And whereas it's not the full um, information and instruction on how to deal with tragedy, it is, it is true. So I'd like to begin by reading Luke chapter 13, 1 to 9, and then we'll spend our time this morning working through it and seeing if we can come to some understanding. What do we make of these things? Luke 13, 1 through 9. <clears throat> there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Were those 18 on whom the tower in Salome fell and killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all others who had lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have been coming seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it, should not, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. 
Now, this, these nine verses really represent the end of the extended discourse in two parts that Jesus has been having with the crowds for the last two chapters. After teaching his disciples how to pray, you remember in chapter 11, he healed the, the demon-possessed person. And that is when we saw the, the, the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus began to demonstrate its infection in the crowds as the people began to suggest that perhaps Jesus worked miracle power by the power of Satan. And then there was others who were simply there for good show. And they would just show us some more signs as if Jesus had failed to show enough. And Jesus corrected, rebuked, and instructed them. Then he went to a Pharisee's dinner, and there, as the Pharisee stumbled over the fact that Jesus didn't observe their customs and wash his hands as they did, he, he launched into them with, with woe after woe after woe and curses upon curses for their hypocrisy, their legalism, their ruthless heartlessness. And then, springboarding off of that, he starts teaching the crowds again. You pick it up in 12.1. When, in the meantime, so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, and you would think this is a good sign. Jesus has never been drawing larger crowds. Jesus has never, in Luke's gospel, had this much public attention, people coming out to him. And he launches into them, warning them of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And the nature of leaven is it spreads. And Jesus is indicating already it's begun to spread. The Pharisees' way of playing games and looking religious and looking righteous and yet inwardly being corrupt has already begun to spread to the people. And he warns them of that. And then, and we'll see this happen again this morning as well, someone from the crowd interrupts. And Jesus takes that and co-ops the question back into his, his message. So a, a man cries out, verse 13, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus then launches into a discourse on the dangers of money, the dangers of wealth, and how you can't serve two masters. What you do with your money will reveal what your treasure is, where your heart is. And then he warns these crowds, these people, to view his return and the coming judgment and to act accordingly. And we saw the, the example, three examples of household servants or slaves. Two are blessed. They're found faithful when the master returns. They're honored. They're served. We also saw the man who didn't know the hour the thief was coming and his house was broken into. We saw the slave who knew his master's will and didn't do it and was drawn and quartered. The other slave who knew his master's will and just delayed, and he was beaten, and the slave who didn't even know. And all of that is, is driving to the point that Jesus culminates the message with at the end of chapter 12, 12, that because judgment is coming, because the Lord will return, and at an hour you do not know, you need to make peace with God while you have time. And this is where he brought this to an end. Um, in telling them to interpret the times, look at verse 57. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. The judge hands you over to the officer. The officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the very last penny. Jesus has brought this to a decision point. He's warned them. Judgment is coming. It's coming when you will not expect it. 
while you can make peace with God, while you can settle your debt and your account with him, do so. Because at any moment, you can be dragged before God's court, and once you arrive in God's court, if you have not already obtained mercy, there will be no offer of mercy in God's court. Now is the time and the season of mercy. Now is the season of forgiveness. But if you wait until you're dragged before the judge, you will receive nothing but perfect justice. And as we are all sinners and we are all indebted to God daily through our actions, we will be required to pay off those debts and we will spend eternity in hell. It's a pretty sober place to bring a message up to. And once again, someone from the crowd interrupts. And again, it indicates them not fully tracking with this. I mean, how more clear, how more poignant, pointed can Jesus bring his message to a close? And yet we hear, and Luke connects 13 to 12, there were some present at that very time. What very time? The time that he had just said, settle with your accuser. The time is near. Hurry who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices. That seems odd. Why would they bring that up here? I can think of two suggestions. One would be, um, as Jesus has talked about judgment, perhaps they're hoping that Jesus will now begin to indict and bring some of this judgment upon the deserved and accursed Romans. Pilate did this terrible thing. He... It's an abomination in the temple. He, he not only slaughtered these men, but is a sacrilege in the temple, because it's taking place in the temple, because you know that sacrifices, animal sacrifices, could only take place in the temple. Moreover, there's only one annual sacrifice which the, the givers participate in, and that's the Passover sacrifice. So most likely, this is the Passover celebration, where you'd have the lamb, and you'd have it in your home for a week, and then you'd have to put your hand on the back of its neck while his throat was cut. It's not certain that that's what's taking place here, but most likely, if Galileans are all the way into Jerusalem, which is the only place they can make sacrifices, one of the three annual feasts is the most probable reason for why they're there, and only one of those feasts involves individuals participating in the sacrificial system. And apparently what happened is these men had done something to offend or break the Roman law. We don't know. They could have been um, rebels. They could have been zealots or the terrorists of their day. They could have done nothing. That's not what's in view. What's in view is they're cut to pieces. And because it's taken place in the temple courtyard, their blood is mixed with the animal sacrifices. The, the altar and all the accoutrements of the temple are contaminated with human blood mixed with animal blood. And this is an abomination. And there's a terrible, terrible fate. And perhaps they're hoping that Jesus will pronounce some of this well-deserved judgment. Jesus has had a lot to say about judgment. Why don't you bring some of that against the Romans? Why don't you bring some of that against Pilate? Maybe that's what they have in view. The other possibility, and I think even more likely, is they bring to his attention a piece of recent, from their point of view, judgment. This is almost certainly a recent event, which then also indicates that if this is the Passover, Jesus has about then one more year left before he himself will be crucified at the Passover. It gives us some sort of marker in Jesus' ministry. And, and there, as Jesus is speaking about judgment, they bring up this event that is horrific and noteworthy. I mean, I would suggest to you that the level of shock and outrage that they have to this, it would be potentially akin to your and my responses when we see some of the beheadings being done by ISIS. 
Just add to that it was being done in a church, and you get sort of the feel of how these Jews would feel, how shocking this news is. Were these people more wicked? What do we make of this judgment of God? And then Jesus answers that, and then he gives another example. He gives the example of a tower that fell in Siloam. Siloam is also known as Shiloh, and this is also attached to Jerusalem. These are two catastrophes in and around Jerusalem. And again, we don't know much about this other than the tower fell. It fell unexpectedly, and in falling, it killed 18 people. And yet Jesus, as he helps them to think through this, draws the same conclusion from both events. One, an example of moral evil, what Pilate did. The other, natural evil. No human being at fault. I mean, unless perhaps there is a lazy um, architect. Just, just things happen. And I don't think that this is the full story on how to view disaster. I don't think that this is the complete instruction how to look at such things. But given Jesus' context, it is an important and true way to look at things. Jesus has just brought their attention to their need of repentance, their need of settling accounts with God, and some tragedy happens in their world, and they're distracted from his message, and they start to go, and Jesus brings them right back. Jesus brings them right back. So we're going to look at this in two points. Um, The first, know how to interpret tragedy. Know how to interpret tragedy. Jesus deals with both of these examples. And his words and his counsel to them flies in the face of a lot of modern evangelistic wisdom. Let's read. There were some present at that very hour who told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all other people who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And I just want to make four observations from these two parallel examples, just working through this. And here's the first. God has a purpose in moral and natural evil. God has a purpose in moral and natural evil. And in this sense, we're piggybacking off of that series we did on the sovereignty of God. But I want you to understand that both the Jews' own approach to this, which Jesus corrects, and his approach assume God's hand in these events. It assumes it. The Jews who are thinking these, this happened because they are more wicked, well, only God brings a judgment against the wicked. So the Jews, in their thinking through this, they are assuming God is involved in some sense. This is a judgment of God. And Jesus, even though he corrects their thinking, as he points this as a call to repentance, again, whose purpose is that? God. And I'll just remind you briefly of some of the texts we looked at that speak of our great God's control in and over all things, including tragedy, including natural evil, and including moral human evil. Listen to Isaiah 45, 5-7. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. The people may know from the rising sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being 
and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. In fact, probably the statement that I made that caused the most discussion, controversy, questions in that entire series was related to the sovereignty of God in 9-11. And I'll read to you again, Amos 3.6. Does disaster come upon a city unless the Lord has done it? Disaster happened in Jerusalem. And we can say biblically, in some sense, the Lord has done it. Not negating the human agency, not negating or letting Pilate off the hook for his wickedness. And in 2001, disaster befell New York City. And Amos 3.6 still says, does disaster come upon a city unless the Lord has done it? And in some sense, we can look at the horrific, sinful, wicked, and terrible events of 9-11 and say the Lord has done that. Don't make no mistake, the terrorists did that as well. They will be judged for doing it. God's sovereignty does not cancel out human responsibility and choice. But the Jews assume that. Jesus assumes that. God has a purpose in moral and natural evil. That's one of the things. As we're trying to think through tragedy, the, the, the wrong answer is God had nothing to do with this. God only does nice things. And the bad stuff, that's Satan. You're not, you're not reading the Bible very carefully if that's the way you think things work. In the book of Job, Satan has to keep asking permission from God before he can attack Job. And he, he obeys and goes no further than the Lord God sets. Our God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the good. And he's sovereign over those things that are also troubling, difficult. God has a purpose over moral and natural evil. Second point here, and there's a rather significant typo in the notes. See, Daniel takes off for a week. Whatever correlation you want to draw between Daniel being gone for a week and me having a major typo in my notes, you can feel free to draw, but I lean very heavily upon his editorial work. It said, the blank here is, being good will not, that not is important, being good will not protect you from disaster. Being good will not protect you from disaster. I put good in quotation marks because in a strict sense, there is none good, right? No, not one. There's none good. No, not one. But being good or being better than the next guy in no way guarantees you protection from disaster. And Jesus corrects their approach in thinking that that is the case. The, the common Jewish understanding is sort of a merit theology, and there is some sense in the fact that God does in this life judge the wicked. In the book of Acts, Luke will record about how Herod, because he received the glory from man and didn't give it to God, was eaten up by worms. The Bible is filled with examples of people who, because of their sin, invite immediate, swift, and severe judgment. One has to think only of those, those young children who are mocking the prophet Elijah. Go up, bald head, go up. And they were torn to pieces by a bear. But you can't flip that backwards, that just because God does at times immediately judge wickedness, that all calamity is a judgment on wickedness. That's wrong. That's what Job's friends assumed. Job, you've done something wrong. God would not afflict you unless you've done something. It's even the theology of Jesus' disciples. When they see the man born blind in John um, chapter 9, whose sin was it? Was it his parent's sin or his own sin? The assumption somebody messed up, somebody did something wrong for this to happen. And so the Jews were looking at this, and well, I guess if God allowed those people to have their blood mixed with the 
sacrifices, then they must have done something really bad. And and it's possible they did break the law. It's possible they did invite Pilate's judgment against them. But certainly not the people with the Tower of Siloam. Certainly not that instance. What, every time a natural catastrophe happens, the people in the towers, the Twin Towers on 9-11, were somehow the most wicked people in America? I don't think so. That's not the answer. And likewise, if you're good doesn't guarantee you protection from calamity, from cancer, from unemployment, from the loss of a child. No, no, no promises whatsoever. We, we reject rightly the prosperity gospel, the notion that if you'll name it, if you'll claim it, if you'll speak words of affirmation, you'll be driving a Rolls Royce. We recognize that is wrong, but I do think we wrestle with and can struggle with buying into the prosperity gospel light. Prosperity gospel light, again, is what teaches, well, if you're faithful and if you're good and you go to church and you give and you help out in Awana and you, you, you raise your family well and you're a good husband, you're a good wife, you, you, you love your community, you do all the things God wants you to do, then God will make sure that your life is relatively you know, smooth sailing. And you'll have those sort of nice middle-class prayer requests about you know, being patient when you're driving and, and you know, being a perfectionist. And we can tell that we buy into this when we see just how greatly it rocked our faith can be when the calamity comes, when the disease comes, when the death comes, when the unemployment comes. Not that those aren't significant trials, not that grieving in those trials is wrong, but frequently we'll see on top of the grief the, well, why, God? I've been good. If you catch yourself doing that, you need to listen to Jesus' words here. You're buying into the same theology, the Jews of Jesus' day. Being good will not protect you from disaster. In fact, interestingly enough, point one here, have you not noticed Jesus himself is a Galilean heading to Jerusalem who will suffer a terrible fate under Pilate? And Jesus was the one who is truly good, sinless. And that sinlessness did not protect him from a terrible fate. No, not every Galilean killed by Pilate in Jerusalem is wicked. Interesting. That's exactly where he's headed. Starting in chapter 9, he set his face resolutely to Jerusalem. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem as a Galilean to die horribly under Pilate. And if... Jesus isn't spared. What right do we have to demand God spare us from tragedy and calamity? And again, I'm centering on 9-11 because I think that when we think of those other judgments out there, it's so abstract. People, people have, you know, they'll read about the flood account and realize God killed everyone on the planet Earth in a global flood except for one family. Everyone. But when... In, it finally gets close to home in our country, in our place. That's when it starts to clicks and makes sense. <sighs> Being good will not protect you from disaster. See, here's the problem. We think far too well of ourselves. We think far, far too well of ourselves. Jesus' answer here is shocking in his estimation of us. No, the people who died on 9-11 were not worse than everyone else. The people who died in the Tower of Siloam were not worse than everyone else. The Galileans who Pilate divided up were not worse than everyone else. And it's not because we're all good, but it's because we're all terrible. See, the next point is this. We need to 
Judge yourself rightly. Judge yourself rightly. And this was really the point that the Jews of Jesus' day had the hardest time dealing with Jesus. We'd already seen this in Luke 4, where Jesus in his hometown in Nazareth announces he's the Messiah, but he's the Messiah who's come for those who are spiritually blind. He's come to save those who are spiritually poor, those who are captives and crippled and lame. And when his hometown understood that he's saying before God, you have equal standing with a leprous Assyrian Gentile and a Gentile widow. You you have the same standing. You're not any further advanced than them. You're as guilty and as corrupt and as needing of mercy as them. They tried to throw him off a cliff. See, they didn't mind Jesus feeding them. They didn't mind Jesus doing miracles. It was Jesus' estimation of them that they rejected. We are not that bad, they insist. And today we say the same thing. And just turn back to Luke chapter 5. Jesus has already hit these notes and this theme in his great sermon on the plain. Lesson in Luke 6. Turn back to 5 and we'll get to the sermon on the plain. Remember the trap of the Pharisees. They, they scoffed and grumbled when Jesus ate with Levi, the tax collector. And what does Jesus say in verse 32 of chapter 5? I've come to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's no one that is too bad, too weak, too sinful for God to save. There are far too many who are too good, too great, too powerful to be saved. And then in chapter 6, the very beginning of his Sermon on the Plain, that what's the door of entering into peace with God? It's blessed are those who are poor, poverty of spirit, who recognize that they don't have chips, currency with God, who come empty-handed. Blessed are those who hunger now, they'll be satisfied. Blessed are those who weep now. It's a recognition of our sinfulness, recognition of our spiritual bankruptcy and our need and desire for righteousness. We need to judge ourselves rightly. In fact, keep your thumb here and and turn over to Romans chapter 3. One of the other things I remember shortly after 9-11 is that my pastor at the time, John MacArthur, I was invited onto Larry King Live with a panel of spiritual, quote-unquote, luminaries. And this was 17 days after the event itself happened, and, and the, the culture was still trying to ask what to make of this, what, what's going on. I got a brief transcript. I remember being blessed and, and just rejoicing at his boldness in answering this as, as all of these other people are trying to dance around, no, God had nothing to do with this. We just live in a world where things happen. And Larry King turns to, to MacArthur and asks, you know, what do you make of this? Where is God in this? And I'll just read part of his answer. 7,000 people died that day. MacArthur, the, the early estimates were actually a little high. The, the actual numbers are 2,977 victims plus the 19 hijackers. But um, working on the information at that time, 7,000 people died in America that day. But 7,000 people in America die every day. So that's like having 366 days this year. That's all. If you're going to ask, why didn't God stop that? You have a huger question to ask. Why doesn't God stop all dying? We feel more comfortable when people die one at a time than when they die in groups of hundreds and thousands, obviously. The bigger question is, why do people die? And if they're going to die... How can you be prepared for the inevitability of that death? 
I don't think he was trying to be callous. What he was pointing out is the same thing Jesus is pointing out here. That we're all going to die. Every day, a 9-11 happens in the world of death. And we don't bat an eyelash. We don't lose any sleep over it. He goes on to say, Jesus was asked by some people one day. This is what he said on national TV, Larry King. They said a tower in Siloam fell and killed 18 people. And they said to Jesus, were they worse than anyone else? And he said, you better repent or you'll likewise perish. It was a severe mercy. It was God's way of saying, look, you have grace. You enjoy life. But at the end, there's death. And you need to be ready for that. See, we wrestle with the problem of evil, and even though we don't notice people dying every day, when tragedy happens, when the truly calamitous deaths occur, we sit up and take notice, but then we're asking the wrong question. We want to know, why did God let this awful thing happen to these nice people? The Apostle Paul deals with the problem of evil in Romans chapter 3, and he deals with it exactly opposite the way we do. Now look at this. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, why did God do this? He's going to tell us why. Why did God publicly put forward Jesus forward and and kill him publicly? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Get that. The real problem of evil is not, why does God let 9-11 happen? The real problem of evil is, why does God give grace to anyone? How can God pass over Abraham's sin? How can God pass over David's sin? How can God pass over my sin and your sin and God not be corrupt? That's the problem of evil. The problem of evil is me and you. And why God tolerates us for a picosecond. And so Paul says here, Jesus was crucified publicly so that the watching universe would understand that God was in fact righteous when he passed over sins. That the, the, the scales were balanced. That, that's the problem of evil. It's not why do bad things happen to good people. It's why do good things happen to bad people. See, Jesus' point here, and he repeats it twice, point D, oh no, sorry, point C, is that regardless of how, you will die and face God. Regardless of how, you will die and face God. In the light of what Jesus has just taught, that's the real issue we should be concerned about. You know, we can, we can read through biblical or even secular history, and see atrocities. But understand, everyone who wasn't in those towers on 9-11 will still die. Everyone who wasn't in those towers on 9-11 will still die and face God. Everyone who survived the Holocaust has or will die. And we get so distracted by people dying in large groups, people dying in horrific ways, that we miss the main point that Jesus is drawing our attention to. The real issue isn't how, but that you will die, and that you will stand before the judge. To use the, the, the analogy that he used in the previous verses of Luke, you will be dragged before the judge. 
And that's an apt metaphor because those people in that tower had no expectation that in mere moments they would stand before God. They were literally dragged into the courtroom, were they not? You and I in any moment can be dragged against our will out of this life and into the next. We will all die one way or another and face God. And when we stand before God, I don't think it'll make much difference whether we died at a ripe old age in our family homes surrounded by our children and grandchildren or whether the Tower of Siloam fell on us. We'll be facing God and we'll have much bigger things to worry about then. Regardless of how, you will die and face God. This is one of the reasons why the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that in some respects, this is what MacArthur means, I think, by a, a severe mercy, that it's only when we look at death, it's only when we go to a funeral, it's only when things like this happen that we begin to think about these things we naturally want to avoid. Listen to Ecclesiastes 7, 2 through 4. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. It's better to go to a funeral home than a wedding. Why? For this is the end of all mankind, The living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart may be glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And through, I'll use MacArthur's phrase, that severe mercy, our country and its thoughts and its heart and its mind was looking at these real questions, at least for a few days, a few weeks. And and conversations were happening in the culture about evil and judgment and righteousness and a lot of the postmodern, I've got my view and you've got your view, flew out the window and we saw a real acts of evil. And people were being pressed, and I've seen them being pressed. Were those 19 hijackers just following their truth? Or is what they did wicked? And people who can otherwise talk about situational ethics had a hard time saying it there and then. Regardless of how... You will die and face God. See, we all deserve God's judgment. And if we deserve God's judgment, then understand we all deserve 9-11s to happen to us. We all deserve towers of Siloam to collapse on us. How else can Jesus say, repent to you, all will likewise perish? The same thing will happen to you. And he's not saying the same means of death will happen to you. You're all going to die in towers that collapse. That's not what he's saying. See, Jesus is looking past that to the real event, standing before God in judgment. Repent, he says, or you too likewise will die and stand before God. Point D, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. What's interesting here, um, and we can wrestle with this, is that there's no mention here of faith, is there? And as we try to wrestle through the Bible, if you, if you survey through Luke, through Acts, the epistles, what you'll find is sometimes the biblical authors will call on us to believe or have faith, and other times they'll call on us to repent. The, the first sermon in, in Acts, Acts chapter 2, all Peter calls upon the men of Jerusalem to do is to repent. And other times it'll call us to repent and believe. And we've talked through the fact that the Bible um, treats them as flip sides of the same coin. Faith is turning to something, Repentance is turning from something. So if I'm facing this way and you say, Pastor Jeremy, can you please turn away from the south wall? There we go. And if I'm facing this way and say, Pastor Jeremy, will you please turn towards the north wall? There you go. Faith generally is looking at the object we're turning to 
And repentance is looking at the object we are turning from. And so here, these Jews who've been so steeped in their self-righteousness, their unwillingness to accept Jesus' um, diagnosis of their condition, they need to turn from that self-righteousness. They need to let go of their claims to purity because they're sons of Abraham. They let, let go of all of that. So what does it mean then to repent? This is the message of John the Baptist. It's the message of Jesus. Notice Jesus does not say, Unless you all ask me into your heart, I likewise promise you that you will perish. Jesus is getting the heart of the matter. We are all serving something. We're all clinging on to something. We're all treating something as though it's worth living for. Whether it's the praise of man, whether it's money, whether it's a claim, whether it's the opinion of other people, pleasure. We need to let go of those gods and turn to the true God. And so Jesus tells this crowd, thousands upon thousands upon thousands, suffering a national tragedy, still shocked at dealing with this news of this horrific event. And Jesus looks at them and he says, I'm telling you, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. And if you haven't dealt with God, if your sin hasn't been dealt with, there is no other issue that that can possibly approach importance. This may seem callous, And there is a place for weeping with those who weep. Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb. That's why I say this isn't the whole story of understanding tragedy. Jesus weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. The Psalms are filled with laments for grief, for suffering. There's a place for that. But if you are not right with God, don't worry about any of that. Repent and believe and have life. What, What is repentance made of? Three, at least three points unpacking what this means because it's so crucial. One, a contrition for sin. A contrition for sin. We just saw back in chapter 6, the sorrow, the mourning, the spiritual bankruptcy. What does it mean to repent? It means to, to feel a genuine sorrow, a godly grief, as Paul will say elsewhere, for sin. Secondly, a renouncing of sin and self. A renouncing of sin and self. Jesus calls Peter, he immediately forsakes everything and follows him. Jesus calls Levi, he forsakes everything and follows him. And look at Luke 14. Lest you just think that those are you know, odd examples. In Luke 14, verse 43, we'll get there in a couple months. Um, we will. Luke 14, 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he have cannot be my disciple. So that's that notion of whatever ever competing gods we have. We don't get to bring the household gods with us under our arm when we come to Jesus. We, we come empty-handed. We come empty-handed. Our renouncing of sin and self. And third, a commitment to trust and follow Jesus Christ. Because you can't turn from something without turning to something. And so whenever repentance is given as a soul condition for salvation, it always assumes the flip side of the coin, faith. For how can you turn from sin if you're not turning to something? And here, Jesus calls for faith throughout the Gospels. I think fill that in. A commitment to trust and follow Jesus. And we remember what Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So Jesus tells this crowd of people who are not believing, who are not repentant, 
Don't be distracted by the news of the day. Don't be distracted by these tragedies. There's a, a lesson to learn in any of it. It's that life is brief, fragile, and we're all, at, sooner or later, going to be dragged before God's court. Deal with that. Deal with that. Then he goes on to tell them an, a short parable in verses 6 through 9 with a simple point. Make a swift response. Make a swift response. Verse 6 through 9, he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. What's Jesus getting at? I think he's further trying to help them understand their mistake of their works theology. In one simple sentence, here's what I think Jesus is saying. It's not because you're better that towers haven't collapsed on you guys. It's not because you're better that your blood hasn't been mingled with the sacrifices. It's because God is merciful. You deserve the same thing. The tree deserves to be cut down. And the only reason it hasn't been cut down is more grace and more mercy has been given. That's what Jesus is saying. If, if you've not experienced calamity, if you haven't lost your job, if you haven't lost a child, if you haven't experienced sickness and illness in your family, it is not because you are better. It is because God is merciful. Let's just work through this quickly. First, the crowd is like a fruitless fig tree in a vineyard. That's the analogy. The crowd is like a fruitless fig tree in a village. It's also possible the crowd represents Israel as a whole. There's Old Testament precedent for God comparing them to a fruitless tree or a fruitless vine. So that, that's the analogy. The crowd, possibly Israel, is this fruitless fig tree. B. The owner of the vineyard has come for three years checking for fruit and has found none. What's the significance there? It's that they have been given sufficient time. They have been given sufficient time. In Leviticus 19.23, Moses tells the Israelites who are entering into the land to possess it, when you come into the land and plant any kind of tree or food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. What's that mean? It means that there's this understanding that it takes a while for a tree to mature and bear fruit. But after three years, you can eat it. So the point here is that whatever is going on, this tree has had sufficient time to bear fruit. The, the, the owner does not have unreasonable expectations. That, that's the point. The owner does not have unreasonable expectations. It has been given time and care and water and sunlight and nutrients it ought to bear fruit. What does that mean for the crowd? Their objection, we need to see more signs. We need to see more miracles. One more miracle. Give us a sign from heaven. You've been given sufficient time. And you ought to be bearing fruit by now. I think it's also interesting. How long did Jesus minister from his baptism to his crucifixion? About three and a half, three years. It's interesting, isn't it? And Jesus is telling this crowd who wants more signs, you've been given enough time. And that the right judgment, point C, is the owner 
plans to cut them down and plant another. That's why I say we, we all, they all deserved to be in those towers. They deserve the same judgment. They deserve condemnation and wrath. And that's the appropriate fitting thing. They've been given enough evidence. They've been given enough time in Jesus' ministry. And, and for, for you and for me, we've been given enough. God has given us His Word. If you're here today, God has given you grace. And if, if you don't know Jesus Christ... And God has blessed you. It's not necessarily an indication that you're any better. It just might be God's mercy. Because notice how the vine dresser responds. What we get is that the vine, the fig tree, ought to have borne fruit. It didn't. The owner's righteous and just response, I want to cut it down. Or maybe what Jesus said a few verses earlier, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were kindled. Is mediated by mercy as the vine dresser responds. Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. See, a stay of execution is given one more year. One more year. Point D here. One last opportunity will be given them to repent and bear fruit. If I'm right in assuming that the Galileans whose blood was mingled with their sacrifices were offering their Passover sacrifice in Jerusalem, then about how much time is left in Jesus' earthly ministry? One year. Interesting. Interesting. So Jesus is warning them you're getting a little bit more time. Now, we can draw the wrong conclusions from this. We, 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 we wait to see God's judgment fall, and it doesn't fall. And we think to ourselves, oh, He won't, doesn't judge sin. We need to listen to what Romans 2.4 says. Do not presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience of God, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But we can presume upon it. I've gotten away with it every other time. I'll get away with it today. I've delayed thinking about these things every other time. I'll delay thinking about it today. See, 2 Corinthians 6, 2, the Apostle Paul says, Behold, in a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. See, Jesus is saying, is, is, understand, God is provoked. We all deserve Holocausts and 9-11s to happen to us every day. And it's the grace and the mercy of God that it doesn't. And we don't get to presume upon that grace because just because God withheld his judgment today does not mean that God will not withhold his judgment this afternoon. And so this is still really the part two of last week's message. Settle with your accuser before you're dragged to court. And Jesus masterfully takes those modern day examples that point out the, the fragility the fragility, the frailty, and the fragile nature of life to say, exactly, settle with your accuser. Repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Tragedy is hard and life is short. But life is more tragic if one does not turn to God. Repent or you will likewise perish. And that's the good news. I'm going to call the worship team up as we get ready for our final song, but... 
the, the difficult pill to swallow is Jesus' estimation of us that we are not the good people who make mistakes. We're not the all right, no okay people who try hard. We are the spiritually dead people. We are the morally corrupt people. We are the idolatrous and unfaithful people. But if we will own up to that estimation of ourselves, pardon is free, freely available. If you will turn from those things you've been building your life on and trust in Jesus, commit yourself to him, you can settle with your accuser out of court. Never face God as that judge. And you can know life. That's what God's offer is. In Psalm 51, David, who's just killed a man and stolen his wife, speaks of what the true sacrifices of God are. There's nothing you can do to please God if you're in his debt, and we all are. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, these you will not despise. Please stand with me as we sing our closing song.